Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Firmly situated in the canon of Canadian literature, David Chariandi has written three eloquent books. His first two, Sukoyant, A Novel of Forgetting, and Brother, draw on his Trinidad heritage and centre on the fragility of human ties. In Sukoyant, a man returns home to care for his mother who has dementia. In Brother, two siblings and their mother battle as working-class immigrants in Toronto. Chariandi's first work of non-fiction is I've Been Meaning to Tell You, a letter to his 13-year-old daughter about growing up a woman of colour in Canada and about living out the politics of race. He speaks with Michelle Langston in a session supported by the Canada Council for the Arts. We hope you enjoy it. I asked David uh, by email if he would read to us from I've Been Meaning to Tell You, a book that's only just become available in New Zealand. So if you're ready, would you like to begin? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I am very honoured to be here. Um, Thank you. Thank you for attending this. I'll read from the first chapter of my latest book, which is um, a work of non-fiction. It's addressed to my 13-year-old daughter. And... um, and perhaps this will give a, a s- small sense of who she is in my life and, um, and why I decided to write this book. You are a girl, but this offers me little I can take for granted. When very small, you decided that you hated pink and also princesses, even the ostensibly modern ones with their conventional prettiness now superpowered. You refused to wear a dress, arguing it was a nuisance when cartwheeling and somersaulting. And today you remain a blur of motion, pure fierceness at the dojo, where you train and spar with adults who tower over you. Recently, when we were in the kitchen together, a news story came on the radio about a man whose criminal charge was reduced from murder to manslaughter. Manslaughter, you said. But that sounds way worse than murder. (laughs) I tried to explain that manslaughter involved someone being killed, but without conscious intent. Suppose a man tried to assault you, I began. But in defending yourself, you punched him so hard that he fell back and cracked his head on the pavement and died. You weren't deliberately trying to kill him, right? But that might be considered manslaughter, even though it was an accident. You thought for a moment, nodding. I see your point, you said. That would be awful. But I wouldn't exactly call my punch an accident. I would call it forceful and correct technique. I've told this story to other parents, receiving smiles both real and markedly awkward. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Sometimes the laugh one gives when something is cute. But I know I've never been successful in conveying its true meaning for me. When I was a boy your age, I'm not sure if I could have expressed so easily my right to defend my body from harm. Not only my right to physical safety, 
but my right to acknowledge and push back against denigration of any sort, great or small. To witness you, my daughter, so physically confident in your body is to be awed and also to wonder at how much your childhood differs from mine. Certainly you possess a worldliness that was unthinkable to me at your age. You've had the opportunity to visit Europe and countries throughout North America, and you wish to see more. You seem to have little of the anxiety I often feel about crossing borders and encountering new people in different spaces. You go to a French immersion school, not only because your mother, raised and educated in Quebec, wishes this for you, but because I too have hoped that you would not be trapped, as I am, in a single language. And yet, the irony is that your very success has turned me into the imaginary immigrant parent I never thought I would be. Proud of his daughter's accomplishments in school, yet unable to help her with even her grade seven homework. Maybe the differences between our childhoods are but a version of those that exist between many parents and children. My own parents, your beloved grandparents, were not imaginary immigrant parents, but real and specific ones. Black and South Asian people who journeyed to this country more than half a century ago, who worked lifelong as a minder of children and a factory laborer. They experienced many indignities and deep body aches, sacrifices and shortages, but they worked hard. They managed to raise a writer who is also a professor of literature, a fact of which they are proud, but also at times perplexed. They do not understand everything about me, but I'm sure they believe for good reason that they have provided a better life for their son and that many, if not all, of the challenges they once experienced no longer affects me. At times, I'm tempted to imagine the same of you. You go to a school that displays posters in the hallways abstractly warning against discrimination and bullying while celebrating inclusion and diversity. You once decided to do a project on the Underground Railroad, and you were supported in this by your teacher. You have been introduced to books by particular authors and in particular voices that I was never introduced to in either primary or secondary school. The Diary of Anne Frank, I Am Alala, The Book of Negroes. You show me YouTube videos posted by a brown girl who, like me, grew up in Scarborough, someone who seems to have no fear in airing to the world her ideas, her opinions, even her everyday silliness. She is, you solemnly inform me, a girl who has experienced rough moments and serious doubts, but who overcame them and learned courage and now advises others on how likewise to be a boss. <laughs> that, that's spelled B-A-W-S-E. And I, every time I try to say it, my daughter rolls her eyes and says, you can't say it properly. It's boss, <laughs> boss. Um, there is a song entitled On Children by, a group of sweet, uh, by the group Sweet Honey in the Rock. It's not a song you'd ordinarily come across, I know. It's based on a poem by Khalil Gibran, who was born in what we now call Lebanon and who migrated to the United States. 
Long after his death, the words of his poem have been animated with new feeling and meaning by the black women singing them. Your children are not your children, sweet Hungni and the rock sing. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. For their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. It is a beautiful and very humbling song for any father who imagines that he might pass on to his daughter wisdom born of experience, of a personal or familial past. But I find myself wondering just when a child begins to dwell in that place of tomorrow. I wonder most often about your life in the place of today and what you have already seen and heard, have already understood and been made to feel. I wonder if there are moments, despite your tough postures, when you have felt neither confident nor safe. I wonder about the persistent messages sent to girls in the news, in movies, in language and image, and in the rhetoric of politics and business, especially girls who share your ancestry, but who have not had your special opportunities. I wonder about the electronic tomorrow that you are already navigating in your room when at night you peer into a screen and the world casts its lurid energies upon your brown face. So I'll stop there. Something that you say in meaning to tell you um, shortly after that is, you say to your daughter, never let anyone tell you that as a girl, you shouldn't express how angry you are. And yet the sense that I get reading across all of your work is that you felt yourself at her age unable to show anger. Um, is, this, is being a parent a chance to take back your own childhood? How much of this is a letter to your young self? Oh, that's a, that's a really smart question. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I think perhaps inevitably it is that. Uh, I, I think in a deep way, uh, I cannot presume to, to tell my, brother, uh, my, my daughter or explain to my daughter um, anything about the politics of race and belonging. Um, she is in a different moment, she's in a different body. She's navigating these questions as a girl, which creates problems that I, I struggle to understand, but I can't really fully understand. Uh, it's my responsibility to try, nevertheless. Um, and so, um, while the letter is addressed to her, and um, with the humble hope that perhaps I've learned something that's worth passing on. Uh, and with the humble hope that even my vulnerability and mistakes, such as not being able to speak up at a particular moment, is also worth um, expressing. Um, I don't, I'm not particularly happy or proud of those moments at all. I don't think that's how people should act, but I think um, our vulnerabilities are sometimes important to share with our loved ones, mm -hmm. as difficult as that is at times. But I think, um, I think this book, I think this book is about me and, uh, and in a certain way a dialogue with me 
uh, a second chance. Mm. You say, um, as a dad, trying to understand a daughter and what she's going through as she comes of age is, can be quite challenging. And in your second novel, Brother, Michael, who's your narrator, says something that I found very telling. He says, I know that by the age of 14, you feel it. And in that moment, he's talking about the gaze put upon him by society and about the gaze of racism. Um, that old kind of racism and judgment becomes discernible as you lose your innocence and your daughter's exposed to that gaze, but also the male gaze. Absolutely. How do you, how do you navigate that? I, I don't know how <laughs> she navigates that. <laughs> I don't know how women navigate that. I say that and yet I, I do, uh, and I'll, I'll say it again, uh, it's my responsibility to, to, to listen and to learn mm. and to uh, attempt to grapple with that. It's not, it's not good enough for me to say, I don't know and that's someone else's problem, that's, that's my problem. I, 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 as a man, uh, you know, I need to grapple with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but it is true, uh, it is very true. There, there are, um, I mean, maybe there, uh, there too is another facet of the conversation I'm having with my daughter. Uh, my, my fiction often is about masculinity and uh, masculinity in its various uh, forms um, and the conflict between different forms of masculinity, toxic masculinity and, and warm, tender masculinity that, that, you know, the caring of a son for his mother, the caring between brothers, um, even when they're adopting postures of toughness, to, you know, that, that beauty in the, um, the everyday braving of love mm -hmm. among men whom the world looks at as, as incredibly dangerous, tough beasts. Um, those are some of the things that I've been struggling to express in literature. Um, but I think, um, I think this book has allowed me to, to think uh, more deeply about how, um, how a girl is navigating uh, those questions. But I have to do that with great humility and humbleness. And again, I, I just simply have to read more um, by, by women writers who, <laughs> who, are, who are putting this on the page all the time. Do you think if your firstborn child had been a son, it would have prompted a book like this, or would it have been? Would the advice to him have been different? I think. And in it, what way? I think. Um, so I think I, I offer actually less advice in the book than than other kinds of. It really is. Um, That's true. That was that was a poor choice. No, no, but <laughs> I, I but I, I I do appreciate the question. I think it's. Um, um, I think I honestly think it is at once central and also incidental that, um, that I'm speaking about a daughter. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was, um, I'd have to think about it a bit more, but I think it really was the fact that she turned 13, or a, a child of mine turned 13 in 2017 and started watching this thing we call politics. And that was the election runoff between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And then asking these questions, and then shortly after that, the instituting of, of the Muslim ban, and then this, this horrendous um, uh, circumstance, um, sadly very you know, familiar to, to you here in New Zealand, in which um, someone professing support for um, the ideologies of the far right um, burst into a mosque and, and ex executed people at prayer. Um, all of this happened really within days of her birthday, the election of Trump, the Muslim ban, and then that that carnage. Mm. And um, it was my humble effort to tell, yeah, someone who was 
just beginning to be attuned to the world of adult politics, um, the sometimes really sickening world of, of adult politics, mm -hmm. even though there are moments of, of, there are glimmers of hope, there are rays in those moments uh, in that world. Um, and so, yeah, I think, it was, I think it was that. What do I say? Mm -hmm. What do I say about this, this specific question of the race and the politics of belonging? Where are we now? And not even that, because um, I, don't, I don't know where we are now. I don't, I don't think I provide that answer in this book. I, I think what I provide is a specific story that I lived through, mm -hmm. and this the very humble hope that I'm going to provide this to you at some point I hope you will tell me your story. I hope that you will read other stories. I, I hope that we'll somehow piece something together. together. Mm. Uh, can I ask you about the reception of this book? Uh, you know, you are chiefly a writer of fiction. Yes. And either wittingly or unwittingly, you've found yourself in the center of a conversation, a much broader conversation. Do you feel the burden of that, of writing into the zeitgeist in the way that you have, and the timeliness of this book? Uh, how does that feel as a fiction writer to be navigating that and to be, you know, do you feel yourself a reluctant poster boy for want of a better expression of, you know, like what's that like for you? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that question because it, it, I do, I do feel very, um, um, I do feel reluctant and, um, you know, I think, essentially, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with offering answers to the world. I'm not, yeah. I'm not good at offering talking points. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm, I'm good at the, um, you know, um, seizing the zeitgeist at the moment. I, yeah. I really don't think that's what... Art can do that, but, the, but art is slower, and, and I would like to think of art as deeper. And I, I, I know that I can't help but address what we again call the political in, in my art, mm -hmm. uh, in my writing. But I also know that I'm, I'm mesmerized by, by language. I'm spellbound by narrative. I, 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 um, I want to know what the novel can do um, to illuminate this incredibly complex, maddeningly complex thing of being human. And, and so that's, that's where I see the center of my identity as, as a writer, not as someone who, who um, offers answers on any, any political movement. Mm. I think, arguably though, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Brother, um, whether accidentally or otherwise, your books are very political. The central narrative in Brother, where a young man's life is lost because of his wanting to speak up, is, is deeply um, political. But you're, you're weaving aspects of your own life into your exploration through your fiction, aren't you? So it's like two trains on two tracks side by side, and you're dipping into an alternate version of what your life could have been like? I think Can so. Talk about that? I think so. I mean, I, I do understand when people talk about fiction as political, mm -hmm. and you know, there's some people who would unapologetically say, yeah, that's, that's what it is, my, my fiction is. Uh, I, I'm tempted to, I, you know, I kept on doing this when I talked about the, the political, and um, you know, I'm, when I do that, I, I guess I'm, there's a language in which we understand our relationships, and we, we, we call that language, 
you know, the language of the political. And I, I've got to say, as, an, as a writer, I'm not happy with the language of the political. I mean, I think, I think there are other ways in which we, we communicate with one another, we, we, we see and hear each other, we tell the stories of ourselves that are far more complex and interesting and, um, and, and just good. Mm-hmm. And uh, the political, the, the discourse of political, of, of the politics, um, oftentimes seems to me, you know, limited. I mean, I say that, again, uh, not dismissing people who do that type of work and um, who do it in thoughtful ways. And, um, but again, I guess it's just my particular, my particular, um, yeah, my particular limitations and interests. Um, I, I'm interested in life, and I, I fear that sometimes when someone is riveted on certain people's lives, that can be interpreted as being political. And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's, that's a kind of a challenge I, I face as a, as a writer all the time. I, I think I'm just writing about life. And then people say, oh, it's, it's, that's a, that's a, that is a very uh, political novel or political statement. And I understand that, and I, I actually respect that. But I, I, I think my center of gravity is more on, on the nuance and complexity of life. You write a lot about your books, your fiction is a lot about family and family yes. relationships and the dynamic, especially between brothers, is something that recurs in both of your novels. And I understand you have a brother of your own who I yes. think is older than he's, you. He's, he's younger. Well, he's younger than you. Yeah, he, yeah. But can you talk about that dynamic? Because you do explore it so richly. Yeah, um, um, with my brother? Yeah, or? with your brother. I mean, yeah. well, as it relates to your fiction, I know that you um, weave autobiographical elements into... Um, your stories, and you do get a sense of that, that closeness that belongs in your own life. Can you speak about, about yeah, that, focus I, on that? I think so. I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I, um, I think it relates back to the, the question of masculinity, and yeah. uh, I maybe call them scripts of masculinity. And I've, I've always been really fascinated by the ways in which um, men... Uh, growing up uh, under um, you know a particular gaze, we talked about uh, different types of gazes that society casts upon different bodies. Mm-hmm. But I do know that uh, my brother and I grew up with a particular gaze upon us, a gaze of distrust, a gaze of suspicion, a gaze of fear oftentimes. And I think we adopted, without trying to speak too much about about him, um, I think we adopted different strategies in in either meeting, or evading that gaze. I think um, um, maybe if I, if I I'll, I'll speak about the novel, but you know, the, Francis in the novel, the older brother in, in the novel, um, uh, feels that in order to meet that gaze upon him, he has to be tough, and he has to be a terror, has to you know, really frighten others around him, because that's the way the, the world looks at him and he, he buys this notion that to, to reveal himself as vulnerable in some way is to lose the game. And I guess the other brother, Michael, um, I guess I would have to say, and I, I, you know, I again appreciate the question, the, the brother I, I guess I would identify with uh, more, uh, realizes for good or bad, he's not going to scare too many people, you know? <laughs> and uh, you know he tries, but uh, it's just not—it's just not going to work. And um, and so um, 
So there's another, there's another, there's another game, and I think it's, um, I think it's about, it's about quietness and listening, and um, I think you know, for Michael and for me, it was reading. Yeah, you talk about um, your daughter's exposure to um, literature that you you were not introduced to as a child. Can and now you teach literature and you teach Indigenous literature in Canada. Can you talk about how you found those works, how you, how you came to discover Indigenous writers? I know you, um, James Baldwin has been a big influence on you. Yeah. Can you talk about at what age you came across them in your life and the influence that they had? Yeah, well, that's, what, um, that's another thing that I find really strikingly different between me and my daughter and, and my son as well, in that I, I, was, I must have been 19 before I read any author who was not white. And that, How did that happen? <laughs> I think, yeah, I know. I, well, t- today, we, we, I think we can, some of us can ask that question, but, yeah. but back then, that was entirely normal. That was, that was, that was simply what, what happened. I, I have to, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50, and so it really was another generation. That you know? education system at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, mm. and it was, you know, it's just that, um, you know, that's, that's simply what happened. But I, I came across accidentally uh, the work of, uh, of James Baldwin, and I was just spellbound by it and just, uh, just thought it was just amazing. Uh, indigenous writers, and I've continued to, I mean, I guess that's what I teach most squarely, uh, black and Caribbean writing and Canadian writing. Um, but um, but I, also, I also read, uh, and I'm just really blessed to, to be able to read uh, indigenous writers from throughout the world. And, and I guess I... Um, that was, that was a case where a, a teacher in, in university um, dared to teach, I think maybe one of the first courses in indigenous literature. And I, I read these books, including you know, books by Patricia Grace, uh, Carrie Hume, um, um, who else? Um, Witty Etamera, of course, yeah. The Matriarch. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Um, and then many others from the U.S. and Canada that you may or may not know, Maria Campbell, uh, N. Scott Mamaday, um, mm-hmm. uh, Silco, uh, these, these incredible authors. But I just found it, I just found it so powerful, and I guess the, the, what the power for me is in the, uh, the power in, um, in connecting with experiences of, let's call it, different gazes upon people and different forms of disenfranchisement, but also the power of difference mm-hmm. and knowing, uh, you know, just really being able to listen and learn about people who have, um, who have uh, a different understanding of, of the world uh, mm-hmm. than, than, than you do. Are you noticing, uh, are you watching students um, changing the way that they engage with historical and modern work? Like, are you seeing that curiosity in kids coming through the universities? I do, yeah. I think, um, I think a lot of, uh, uh, no longer, I think, can someone go through almost all of university and not read a non-white author. I mean, I, mean, I, do, I do, I read widely. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't, I don't um, decide that I'm just going to read one type of author. Um, I, I really, I think that's part of the magic of literature, uh, is to, um, you know, to really, um, to, uh, to access 
experiences and uh, art forms that are just very different from what ones you're familiar with. And I believe profoundly in that. Mm -hmm. uh, even as a teacher, I believe I believe profoundly in that. But I think um, I think I there there was a moment, and I, I you know I think it is ongoing. We just have to continue thinking about about this. Is how how to be more aware of those voices and experiences that mm -hmm. we could easily neglect. Um, and and it's not simply about being nice to people. It's also um, having access to great art forms and um, the again the magic of narrative and language um, uh, coming from different contexts. Mm. Can I ask you about your parents sure. um, and their journey to Canada and I suppose one of the things that really stands out for me across all of your writing is you carry the refrain and it's quite a melancholy refrain of your parents experience through all of your writing um, in both of your fiction works are parents who are, are struggling as immigrants in Canada. Can we talk about the grief that we feel for parents or their experience? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Can you talk about where you place that with your own parents in your life and in the way that you have rendered their history in your books? I think that's, that's a, again, a, a, really, um, a really, you know, such a a complex and excellent question. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, I would have uh, maybe two different responses that, that seem, would seem very different. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, that's pretty redundant, but that's... <laughs> um, you know, on the one hand, my, my parents did struggle coming to, to Canada. So Canada changed its essentially non-white policy uh, sorry, re restricting non-white people from coming to Canada in 1967. That's uh, when certain policies restricting Im immigration from the, the third world were, were changed. Um, and that created then the very multicultural Canada, helped to create the very multicultural Canada that we see today in our cities. Um, it, it, the, at the same time, people of color always exist in, there's a 400-year there's a legacy of black people, for instance, being in Canada. Um, so, so people were there before, but just in numbers, it just wasn't the case. Yeah. So 67 was the, the, the changing of the policies. My mother came as a black domestic worker, and it was a very specific program to recruit black women, single women from the Caribbean, um, to come and work in the households of, of the wealthy in Canada. And she came in 63. So she arrived in a Canada that's very different from the Canada in which I uh, walked around in. I talk about the gaze upon me growing up as a, as a working class kid um, in, uh, in Toronto. But um, you know, I, I do think about, reflect upon being a, a, a living wonder on the streets, as my mother would have been, mm. um, in in very negative ways. Obviously, mm. I mean, she felt that. You know, she would go into restaurants and they'd refuse to serve her. She she'd be mistaken for the the, the worst type of um, um, of individual, and um, and yet they were. Um, she and my and my father, who she uh, afterwards sponsored to come to Canada. Uh, they, as I mentioned, they, they worked very hard. They, um, they believed in, in the dream of Canada. They really did. Uh, you know, it's always that ambivalence. I'm not sure if, if... I'll stop there. The other thing is... <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other thing I want to say, though, is that's one way of narrating it, and I think it appears in my, in my novels, that, uh, you know, 
the care that children have towards parents who do not want to admit to their children they are struggling, they mm. are scared, they don't know where the next meal is coming from, they are in physical pain because of the work that they have to do, they are tired, mm. they, they are sleeping four hours a night for night after night after night, doing rotating shifts in order to do their work, but they are never going to tell their children that um, this is not opportunity, that, um, that um, things aren't all right. But the children know, the yeah. children know that something is wrong. And, and it's that type of relationship, um, the type of intimacy that is unspoken and yet yeah. recognized by the children, that is, that is definitely in my work. Um, the last thing I'll just say is that that's, that's one way of describing it. Um, the other way to describing it is um, this, how incredibly, um, how incredibly beautiful and blessed and empowered my parents were. Mm. You know, I'm here because someone loved me. That's why I'm here. That's the only reason how it, so many other people who are smarter than me, who I work pretty hard, so I'm not sure too many, too many people work hard. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, you know, there are many people who work incredibly hard. And I, I just lucked into a life uh, pursuing a passion that I'm very grateful to, for. But I'm, not, I'm under no illusions that this is what happens to people in my situation. It does not happen. Because you nearly didn't situation. make it, did you? No, yeah, you um, no. were encouraged to take up a trade yeah, in high school. Yeah, and someone, yeah. Didn't someone glance upon your grades and discover that you were actually quite brilliant and kept you yeah. on the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they, they couldn't be bothered to look at the standardized tests. They just felt that, you know, you, yep, come on, just be a little practical. A person like you should, should work with, your, you know, your hands. That's, mm. what, that's what someone like you should do. But, you know, it's, it really is something. I mean, I, I, that's the other thing. I want to pay homage to, to the force of a mother's love. The force of a black mo uh, mother's love is something that I think I want to... Um, mm. I also want to... Um, That's to in capture. both of your pieces of fiction, um, centres around a young man trying to reach their mother, and one of your mothers, Adele, has um, dementia and is lost to him in many ways. Mm -hmm. And in Brother, um, it is a mother that is broken by grief, who is unreachable. And so that sense of longing and That's wanting it. to protect is very present, isn't it? Yeah. Did you... As as a child growing up, did you feel a sense of obligation to protect your parents from what you were experiencing in terms of the racism you were facing? Did you hide that from them? Did yes, they know? yes, I did. I, I did that maybe for two reasons. Um, so yes, protecting my parents and their, their dreams and their sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, what would it be like to then go and say, this is not working really well for me, uh, I'm sorry to tell you. Um, I think instinctively, I never wanted to, to provide that narrative. Mm. And the other thing is, I guess, uh, you know, that's the highest form of, of subjugation, I would say, when you experience something, but rather than pushing back, you're made to feel ashamed and silenced. And it's the worst condition to be in. And um, I'm not saying that it was, you know, it was, it was always violent and, and abject my, no. my life. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that... Um, Again, one of the things I would like to uh, caution a new generation about is um, feeling ashamed when you should not feel ashamed, um, being quiet and silence, silent when you, mm. you can speak, uh, and you can speak in different ways. You can speak through, um, you, can, you, can, you can speak in different ways. Perhaps for me, 
uh, fiction writing and 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 narrative arts uh, were a way for me to speak. Mm. You said that um, David was part of a panel on everyday racism um, earlier in the Writers' Festival, and you said something that really struck me. You said on that panel that you wondered if being polite is how you have survived. Can you expand, can you talk about that politeness and that kind of shame that prevents you from saying something and what the alternative is, like what we see with Francis and Brother? Yeah. And, to, and talk about the ramifications of, of that. Yeah, it's, um, it's not something I'm proud about saying. Uh, and it's, I guess it's one of those moments where, as, either as a writer, but I guess I'm speaking personally, um, I'm, I'm not proud in admitting that. That's not a good, that's not a good thing to, to admit. It really isn't that, um, that I did not, uh, you know, in certain circumstances, I found it difficult to, to speak up. And, and I, I want to be also gentle with myself. I think in my time and era, um, it was hard, I, and I would face consequences if, if, mm -hmm. if I did. And I learned that. I just learned that that, that would... And so when I say that I, 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 I survived through a form of politeness, I, I say that with a, actually with a measure of, of, of shame and also, but also, um, you know, I, I think it's, I, I like polite people. <laughs> I try to be polite. You know, I think I, there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, with, you know, it's nothing wrong with being respectful of our fellow human beings. I, I actually, you know, I actually believe that. I think I just get that from, from my parents, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's me. It's it's. I, I just think that's a, it's just a very honorable way to move through the world and to, to recognize the the uh, yeah the, mm -hmm. this this luminous beauty of other people, people that you don't know and people that you you think you know. You're just beginning to understand. Um, but that's 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 a bit. You know, it's. Um, it, I'm not proud to say that, but it's. Um, yeah, but it's something, you know, I guess we as writers, when we're speaking personally, maybe uh, the biggest act of courage at times is to reveal something that you're not proud of. Um, because I think we can, we can, you know, yeah, what's, it's nothing interesting about saying how, how great you are and how you do the right <laughs> things all the time. I never do the right things, no. uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't let any of your characters in your fictional novels off the hook. And I wanted to ask you about the temptation to give them stronger outcomes or, or an out of any kind or to be able to speak up and be heard and have their narrative change in that way. You resist that, giving them perhaps a better chance. Why is that as a novelist? So sorry, can well, you... Well, it's very... Oh. For example, in Brother, mm -hmm. Francis's moment to stand up stands up to the police and, and, and his life is ended in that moment. There are other narratives that you could tell where perhaps um, an ending is not so sorrowful or you could, you could change the way that things could end and yet for those characters, you know, it is deeply sad. Do you ever consider that? Do you ever consider not, you know, lifting, lifting the outcome? I'm not articulating that very no, no, well. There's a question I, there. No, but, I think I you know, just, the, yeah. Giving them a chance to speak up and be heard in the way that you've perhaps felt you weren't, in the way that in Brother Francis isn't. No. Yeah. Like, do you ever examine those those outcomes? I, I do. I mean, some people. Uh, um, yeah. I guess maybe maybe the way that I think about it is my. Um, I think I gravitate at least in the two novels that I've written, you know, so far. Um, I, I think I do gravitate to the, the tragic mm -hmm. um, as a form and as a, um, 
as a force for, for understanding. And um, so I'm not saying that my, I hope my books aren't downers. That's not what I'm, <laughs> no, <they're> not. <laughs> it's not really what I'm saying. I, you know, I, in fact, you know, the, to the extent that I focus on the tragic, I, I actually wish and I try to my, 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 the, to the limits of my ability to make, uh, to, to make life, to reveal life as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And to show that um, what is lost, essentially, that something, something beautiful has to be there to have the, the tragic. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, but I guess, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a hard question. I mean, you know, we can go right back to Aristotle. You know, why, why did Aristotle think that tragedy, you know, you know kind of uh, disagreeing with his, his, ostensibly his tutor, Plato, tragedy, mm-hmm is uh, very powerful, these, these emotions of pity and fear that we, that are roused and perhaps um, purged when we encounter the tragic and witnessing a, a fellow human being, um, you know, or a, a great human being um, falling. Why does that help us? And I, I wonder if it's, if it rivets us to um, our vulnerability as mm-hmm. human beings. And, um, and that can be, I think that's a very good thing. I think when, when, we, um, when we hide behind masks, we're, we're really robbing ourselves of the opportunity to reflect upon our, our, our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's what, for me, what's, um, what literature and, um, can do best. It, it draws attention um, to to that enduring fact of our condition, not, not in order to be nihilist or, or to just shrug and give up, but, but really to, to be all the more caring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what the tragic uh, as a mode uh, can do. I want to ask you something, um, a theme that runs through your work, and that is of um, naming the importance of names, the way that names can limit you or set you free. It's a common theme in your work. Can you talk about the significance of names? I'm thinking particularly in I've Been Meaning to Tell You, when your young son is called a very strong, awful racial slur at school, and right. your daughter defends him, and you place that alongside a poem by County Cullen that's many, many years old, about being called that name on a bus. Mm. Can you talk about yeah, can you talk about name, naming and the power of name? Yeah, I think it is the most, uh, in, you know, symbolically, but also sometimes quite physically and literally to, to name someone against that person's wish, mm. uh, to name in a, in, a, in a violent way is, is one of the most uh, powerful, um, um, you know, um, yeah, the most violent things one can do to, mm. to other people. And of course, if we kind of think about the, the history of slavery, for instance, you know, it, it, one, of the, one of the ways in which um, the power over someone, a human being that you have enslaved, um, is, is, um, operates is through the renaming of that person mm. and the denial of that person to name herself or himself. But I guess that poem, that poem is about... Um, I'm of um, mixed um, racial background. I, I, I grew up being named as black and have, have come to identify as black and be, uh, identify very proudly about that, that heritage of, um, of, of struggle and art and, and so forth. Um, but uh, I am mixed. My, my partner is, um, is white. 
she's uh, in Quebec, uh, born and raised in Quebec, but English speaking. Um, so my, my, um, my son is very mixed, as is my daughter. And uh, definitely people of color, that term that I guess we now use, uh, and it has, carries real consequences. It's not, it's not, it's not just that. But they are people of color, and they can be read in all kinds of different ways. But um, yeah, at school he was, um, some, some uh, fellow child just used this word, the N-word, uh, which I don't like, you know, I just don't like speaking it. And um, so he came home and instantly, you know, was, was very, very upset. And my daughter was like, you know, <laughs> you know, who is this child? And, you know, she went to confront the entire group of people. And she, is, she's a, she was, in that middle school, a terror. You know, it's kind of really funny. You know, she became what my brother, I think, aspired to be, like the toughest person in the school. And, and she's, you know, she's not, a, she's not a violent person, but she's, you know, she said, she's confronted the student, you know, you will never use that name again uh, to, to my brother. Um, but I guess I, uh, in recounting that story and, um, and, and actually saying to my son, you know, I actually know what that's like. Um, it's, it was a bit of an accident that you were, not an accident, but, uh, you know, he, he could be read in different ways. He really could. Um, as perhaps in different contexts, I can be read in different ways. But I was called that name, uh, and I was called that name often. And sometimes people thought it was just funny. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't think everyone who called me that name was trying to, trying to be, trying to dehumanize me, um, trying to dehumanize me. I don't think they were always intending to do that, uh, but they they came close to doing that. Mm. And, um, and so I just wanted to share with my son that, that I know what it feels like. And uh, I also wanted to share this poem by County Cullen. He's this uh, African-American author, kind of wrote um, in the early you know, 50s and, mm. and so forth. And he describes, I, won't, I can't uh, go into the poem, but he describes visiting Baltimore for the first time as a young kid, as a boy. He was on a train, and the person and the... Um, and the in the seat ahead of him, another little boy turned around and stuck his tongue out and called him the N-word. And the whole poem is, um, you know, to me what's interesting about the poem is that it's, it's such careful form. You know, it's the, the tick-tock of the rhyme and the, the metrics of the poem is, it betrays the consciousness. I'm being very careful about, you know, recounting this experience because uh, that's the only way I can kind of grapple with it. Mm -hmm. But the the point of the poem is that, um, is that um, he says, you know, during my entire trip to Baltimore, that was the only thing I remembered. And that's, that's really what racism does. It, it, just, it, 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 can, it can compel you to think nothing about life except racism. And that's not a weakness of the person being named. No. That's the effect of racism. And um, I'm so grateful that County Cullen, as a, as a poet, was able to write about life, uh, like other people who are named in different ways, um, can still um, see something, something beyond that act of naming. Uh, I think we have to look at the act of naming too, but I think it's, it's, it's a real victory to kind of to think beyond it um, as well. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. 
You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.